The samurai said, if, if you're unborn brave, if you're a coward and you're not born brave, you can be made brave if you're too ashamed to turn and run in front of your peers. And they found out that with enough shame, that unborn brave person would go into battle. And after a few battles, they would find their legs and they said they couldn't tell the difference between the born and unborn brave. But you had to have enough shape for people to move forward. So in a sense, even though it's politically incorrect and it violates the self-esteem movement, we find that if people have enough shame, you can challenge them to do amazing things. Welcome to Management Development Unlocked, where you will learn how to nurture a world-class management team. And now your host, Eric Gerard. Welcome to another episode of Management Development Unlocked. I am really glad you're here. While you still have your device in your hand, I'd like to ask three favors. One, please subscribe to the show. Two, please share the show with at least one other person. And three, go to GerardTrainingSolutions.com and download my free ebook on becoming a manager. Today, I have Don Schminke with me. Don, welcome to the show. Who are you and what do you do? Oh, thank you. I'm um, glad to be here. I uh, What do I do? Uh, I've been told that I'm an explorer and a scientist. And I got pulled into this issue of management sort of indirectly. And that's what I've been doing for about 20, 25 years. So part of what I do around that is uh, write books and give speeches, do workshops. Awesome. Well, we were going to talk about a couple of those books today, and I am thrilled to have you. So thank you for being here. And let's dive in. So starting broad at the top of the funnel, I'd love to hear your philosophy of management development. So that's that's my audience as new managers. So I'd love to hear your philosophy on that group of folks. Sure. I think for me, the first question is why? Why? <laughs> why do you want to be a manager? <laughs> what I find out is that a lot of a lot of managers, when they get into the job, realize it's not quite what they, quite what they thought. In fact, the opening line, I think, and one of my later books, High Altitude Leadership, was that leadership sucks <laughs> because you're managing humans and humans not necessarily, aren't necessarily the, the easiest species to manage. So um, I would think that would be a good first question. I see a lot of managers want to be managers and when they get into it, it's just, they're just not having fun. But once you realize, hey, this is something I want to do. Then I think, you know, find your altitude is uh, my philosophy because we all have different altitudes. And sometimes if we're promoted above the altitude where we can breathe, uh, we don't perform as well as we should. So like not everybody's meant to be CEO and a lot of CEOs are meant to be CEOs. <laughs> so, you know, what is the altitude? Where can you perform best and, and strike for that? I love I love the analogy of find your altitude. We were talking before we started recording about climbing, and you've done some pretty ambitious climbs. I'm very proud that I I managed to summit a couple of 14ers in Colorado without collapsing. So that's that, <laughs> I, I made it up and back down, which is the important part. <laughs> nice. So I love the analogy of of find your altitude. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Yeah, it's, it's working a lot. I, I've integrated that into my workshops that I do with the. Uh, management teams. And uh, out of all the methods we have around organizational structuring and development, that seems to ring easily and, and very be very useful. That's the feedback I'm getting. Awesome. Well, maybe we can talk offline about taking a look at one of those workshops. Sure. Yeah. Well, when you become a leader, how do you define winning for your team? So manager, leader, now you've got a team of people that you're responsible for. How do you help them 
know what what good is? What does winning look like? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think the I think the essence is what's the role that you have as a team. So, for instance, are you uh, strategically focused or oriented, or, or are you more operations? And then the because the, the winningness really is defined by what are the results that are expected to be produced by this team. So a lot of times we define winning as uh, styles or you know something more philosophical, but I, I'm much more bottom line on it. The, the CEO or the sponsoring executives have, has developed your team for a reason. And what was that reason? Because uh, typically that's result that you are supposed to want to produce together. And that becomes the beginning of the conversation. So I would say first thing around defining winning is don't define it up front unless it's required in your your role. But basically work with your team on it to say, hey, look, we were created for this result. We're created for this purpose. How do we define winning together? Because sometimes it's hard to dictate winning to someone who's really not bought into it. And so to get buy-in, it's kind of a co-creation process where we all define together what, what a win looks like. Yeah, unless, unless, it, unless it's something that you were handed, in which case then it's more of engagement and enrolling them into that concept of winning mm-hmm. and determining whether some people aren't into it, in which case you got to replace them with somebody that is. So, so a lot of it depends. Is, has it been handed to you, in which case you have to enroll them into it, or is it something that's generic enough you can engage them in creating it together. But at the end of the day, you don't want to go into battle with half the team not willing to follow you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You've got to have folks willing to back you up when you uh, when you start running. Mm-hmm. Another one of your books is about the samurai philosophy and leadership. So tell us about the samurai philosophy you use in, in leadership training. Yeah, that's... Um when Oxford University gave me this book, I, I didn't know it was going to take off like it did, um, but it was back in the 90s and it was an ancient management training program. And when I opened it up, the first thing they were focusing on was death. And I felt like, geez, this isn't going to go very well. But uh, what I found out was that we don't teach de- how to die properly, which should be a foundation of leadership training because as we got into this neurologically and I was teaching at Johns Hopkins cause I'd left MIT at the time. So I kind of branched off from planetary physics and got right into uh, behavioral studies and humans. And it turns out that throughout history and even today that the ego kind of takes us into dark places and cuts speed back in organizations. So decisiveness and problem solving gets sabotaged because selfish ego tendencies, but the samurai figured it out. I mean, if you, Remember that you have to die someday. That actually unhooks the ego. And so we began to use that and we began teaching executive teams in this philosophy and literally their speed in decision-making and and strategic execution doubled within like three to four months. And then, and then it, it, it kept increasing. Uh, So what we find is that I think two things. One is we should teach people how to unhook the ego. But number two is I think we should teach leadership around speed because I know we, we spend a lot of time on styles of leadership and every year there's a best-selling book on, you need to be this kind of leader or that kind of leader. And, but I think at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what kind of leadership style you're using. Are you able to produce strategic results quickly? Because there's a lot of bankrupt companies that had great leaders. <laughs> 
it's a great leadership style, but they're they're bankrupt. Okay, let me let me just go back a little bit. Planetary physics. Yeah. Let's take a detour. You can hear you can hear the ricochet now. Tell me about that. Like, what what were you doing over in planetary physics? I was studying planetary formations and planetary sciences as a department at MIT, and I was doing some early work in electrical engineering and AI back in the seventies. We were starting to program AI, and then I got fascinated with natural occurrences, natural developments, and and, and planets were a great place to start because this is where nature begins. <laughs> But in studying that, I started studying this planet, and that's when I became interested in human development. And that's what took me to Johns Hopkins, where I did my graduate work and I ended up teaching there. And what was your graduate work in? Mainly it was in a, a sort of management science, looking at human, how humans group. Mm-hmm. And, and they asked me to investigate the high failure rate of management theories. And so we started looking at genetic warfare and evolution and anthropological elements. And that's how we discovered why management theory fails 70 70 to 90% of the time and and how to fix it. So we were able to drive team performance, you know, two to three times, in some cases, 10 times higher than the company was currently performing using these uh, biological techniques. Okay. For the layperson, can you name one or two of those techniques? For the, the who? For the layperson. So for, oh, the non, right. for the non-scientist. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, the tech, techniques that we were looking at was, uh, well, I mentioned one already, which was um, the ego really sabotages execution because it ties us up in terms of uh, dysfunctional behaviors. And, you know, you, you start, and I've had people say, yeah, I go into my office and I feel like they're filming another episode of The Office. And I'm like, I'm like, I said, yeah, people think The Office is a comedy, but it's not. It's it's a documentary. <laughs> so the one element is how to unhook that because that's that's total sabotage. The other the other areas w- w- was um, we started seeing strategy and a team coming together was being taught wrong, and I was part of the problem because we were teaching it from analytical models when real strategy was around intuition, and we're not teaching intuition. And so we started looking at that. Then the, and then, then it cascaded from there into other areas around culture. We saw a lot of culture change programs failing, and we found out that they were not using tribal grouping instincts, which, are, which our bodies are designed for. So when we started researching that, we were able to fix a lot of culture failures by using things like symbols and rituals and magic. By magic, I mean those magic moments that are in our mythologies. So it became really exciting because every time I dis- discovered something and we applied it, you know, performance of teams took off dramatically. And then um, I was asked to speak more. So today I, I train about 700 CEOs a year. And overall, somebody just calculated that I probably have trained about 30,000 CEOs. And I'm like, oh my God, really? That's <laughs> so <laughs> still need to get the hang of it, I guess. But that, those are huge numbers. Congratulations. That's amazing. Oh, thank you. Yeah. 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 <laughs> now you mentioned magic. Magic for some reason makes me think of Vikings and you wrote about Vikings. You wrote about the, the Viking saga and how that comes into play in leadership and management. So can we take another left turn and head over there? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. We can take as many turns as you want. Uh, studying human civilization and its evolution was just so exciting. And I and when I give speeches to teams and, and industries and all that, I, I find that audiences are really interested in this because 
it provides a validation, but we also pro 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 provide the medical research to show why it works the way it does. Now, the saga came in because we have all these these newfangled bright shiny objects these days, like mission statements. I mean, you need a purpose statement and a uh, you know value statement and a why statement, and we, we just got a lot of statements. But I was wondering why why do most bankrupt companies have these statements? Like what's missing? And we found out that what, it, what was missing was that people weren't developing their culture or their teams to have what we've seen to be a very effective modality and, and winning. And that is having bravery and honor and having a willingness to suffer and sacrifice together for a greater cause. And this has worked so many times throughout history that we thought, well, how do we apply this? So we started experimenting about 15 years ago. And we used the Vikings as an example because the saga, you know, what we call a compelling saga, is different than a mission statement and a purpose and a vision and all that. It really is a statement that creates something formidable for the company or the teams that, you know, we're, we're going to need each other to achieve this. And that's an interesting insight. Can you, as a leader, create that belief where we all need each other? We cannot do this alone. And where we have enough bravery and honor to execute it. And, and we're willing to suffer and sacrifice together. So I think that issue of need as a, as a leader generating that and generating a level of bravery and honor is a really, these are just missing elements when it comes to execution, but the teams that do it outperform the others. So it's 2023. How do you build a team to have a sense of bravery and honor? Cause I'm imagining as you're, as you were talking, I'm imagining, you know, a bunch of folks in, in with, with fur stoles over their shoulders and hats standing around a campfire. And there's, a, there's somebody telling the saga and, you know, getting everybody really ramped up for, for what's coming next. But, you know, in the age of AI, how do we do that? <laughs> well, AI is just another tool, but I think, I think what we're doing is we're saying, okay, you take that strategic result that you're supposed to that you're supposed to produce you know, that your team's supposed to, you know, fulfill their role in, and it's one thing to say, well, here's our team mission. Okay, let's rah rah, and we'll go forward. But it's more than that. It's more the way the Viking saga comes into play is you look at uh, creating the story of what's next in such a way that the team believes they need each other in order to achieve it. And then what you want to do is begin challenging the team as to, you know, do we have enough bravery to make this happen? Do, what does that mean to us? What, what does honor mean? And sometimes it's experiential. Sometimes we've gone in and taken uh, executive teams, a snapshot at where they are and where they wanted to go. And looking at the gap they had across to get to that new level required such a suicide to current beliefs that, it, it, they couldn't do it unless they had enough bravery. And we would challenge them in a way that allowed them to step up to that, mainly from the use of a politically incorrect term called shame. And uh, what was interesting is the, you know, the whole self-esteem movement where everybody gets a participation trophy has been a total failure. And all the research coming out now is showing that that was uh, an interesting experiment, but it just didn't work. But what seems to work is it's not about self-esteem, it's having enough shame. 
and how the samurai did this, and this is great because we've done this in executive teams all over the place, that if you're if crossing that gap, well, let's put it this way. The samurai said, if, if you're unborn brave, if you're a coward and you're not born brave, you can be made brave if you're too ashamed to turn and run in front of your peers. And they found out that with enough shame, that unborn brave person would go into battle. And after a few battles, they would find their legs. And they said they couldn't tell the difference between the born and unborn brave. But you had to have enough shame for people to move forward. So in a sense, even though it's politically incorrect and it violates the self-esteem movement, we find that if people have enough shame and you can challenge them to do amazing things, you know, and they can find their confidence, find their legs and really be part of a high performance team. I wonder what kind of letters I'm going to get. (laughs) Well, any feedback's good feedback, right? (laughs) Hey, if people are paying attention, that's all I ask. (laughs) That's right. Right. Now, another one of your books and one of your adventures is about climbing at high altitudes. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the leadership lessons we can learn from climbing at high altitudes. Yeah. The, um, the book was looking at dangers. It was an interesting project because I, I finished climbing um, the highest active volcano in the world. I mean, I mean, climbing is a, a crazy sport, but to climb an active volcano is stupid. That's where I met Chris Warner, who uh, was my co-author. And he's probably the top, climb, uh, top rescue climber in the world. And he's done just um, unbelievable numbers of expeditions where no one's died He's done the Everest thing many times. He was, you know, a guide and he, um, he put this thing together and I met him and we started doing an analysis of his experiences live while he was on K2 because NBC was filming Chris on the death mountain. So this is his third attempt. He failed twice before and he led one of the most successful summits of K2 in history. So the death rate that was 10 times higher than Everest and he, he and his team had cameras. So we started filming humans in death zone environments. So it became a great laboratory for me because, you know, a lot of my expeditions are I'd like to go to like lost civilizations or these extreme areas to see how humans work. And this is what happened. And so he ended up in the filming. We wrote the book live because they would link via satellite phone to me. And we started seeing that leadership is about risk. And that opened up a whole new area of leadership research that had never been done before. You know, what are the risks and where are the areas that, what are the, what are the dangers? And, you know, like selfishness or arrogance or, you know, things like that became now something that we felt needed to be exposed more. And that's, uh, and that's what we did. We started exposing it and we had the live, we had the live video and the results of what was happening on K2 that really showed it working or, or not working, depending upon how you wanted to look at it. Why K2 and not Everest? K2 has got a, is more dangerous than Everest. It's almost as high. Okay, it's just a few hundred feet shorter, but it's a vertical climb. So it's not, it's not like, you know, it's <laughs> it's you know, Everest is more of a hike. If you look at the films, it's mostly hiking. And most of the guides call them hikers. <laughs> but there's only a couple of places where you have, you know, technically vertical ascent, like on the on the step and everything. But in K2, it's a vertical ascent on all sides. I mean, you're technically, climbing, you're not hiking. You're technically climbing all the way up to an altitude almost as high as Everest. And so that's why climbers 
see ever a CK2 as the challenge, not not Everest. I mean, Everest now you your chance of death is from standing in line too long. I mean, that's <laughs> that's what's going on right now. There's just so many people on Everest that it's it's not unusual. In fact, Chris does this when he does his speeches. He'll ask how many people have been on Everest, and there's usually like one or two people in an audience. So you know, Everest has been figured out, but K2 has got a 10 times higher death rate is what I was told. 10 times higher death rate because it's so challenging. And that's why, uh, and a lot of climbers won't attempt it. It's just, it's crazy. For a while, I was obsessed about climbing Everest. Oh yeah. And, you know, I, I read books and I watched movies and I thought about it and I thought, you know what? People People die up there like a lot. Maybe maybe I won't go do that. And so I settled for a couple of 14ers instead. But yeah, I mean, I, and just the video, especially when I, when I finally stopped watching videos of Everest, it was people getting really upset because they're stuck in line between people trying to get up the step. Yes. And, and just like, yes. I'm going to freeze standing here, not because I fell or anything yeah. like that. It's, uh, I mean, they got to figure it out. If you have, mm-hmm. I don't know, what, 50, 60, $70,000 in three months of training, you're on Everest. Boom, and done. Pick you up. You could yeah. be 80 some years old. You could be a paraplegic. You could be blind. I mean, they've all climbed. Yes, they have. Yeah, it's not special anymore. Yes. Well, you've written several books, as we've, as we've kind of alluded to. Can you pick one that would resonate with us as new managers and people trying to help new managers make the transition? into their, into their role. This is interesting. I wish I had my other book coming out, Winners and Losers, and it's written for entrepreneurs, which basically every leader has some level of entrepreneurship. But the, the ones that are out now, like it depends on what you're looking for. Like if you're looking at ancient management philosophy to have that help you become stronger, then I would recommend Oxford University's work that I published in uh, the code of the executive. So the code of the executive really is I tried to preserve the original manuscript as much as possible. I had to re-edit it to fit with like more Western categorization of concepts. But that was that experiment. The other, um, the other one, high altitude leadership, is probably more for a manager who says, hey, look, I want to find out. Yeah, no leadership sucks. I want to find out what the risks are, and I want to figure out how to avoid those risks. That's probably a better book. Or both. And where can we find those books? Amazon or Barnes and Noble. Or, yeah, they're all okay. over the place. All and right. You, and a lot of our myth busting, I, I do have a free PDF if you want to go to uh, sagaleadership.com. There's a, I want to do a shameless plug here. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was I was going to get to that, but let's do it now. Okay. There was a lot of people were saying, you're busting these management myths. How can we, how can we learn how to do that? How can we take that? that tool and, and apply it in our management development. And so I just, I put together a simple PDF that should provide some, some ways of looking at everything that's published in management development. And there's about 35,000 books a year. I know it's an extreme amount, but out of those, how can you find the ones that really have some meaning or some relevance? So yeah, you can download that, uh, that PDF at sagaleadership.com and, you know, have fun. Let me know how it works for you. Perfect. Thank you. Well, let's transition to what I call the lightning round. This is a series of questions where we get to learn a little bit more about you on a slightly more personal level. Uh, nothing, nothing embarrassing. You disclose only what you want. The first question is, if you could sit in my seat and interview anybody, living or dead, that you'd like, who would it be and why? Putin. Why? I'd want to find out what exactly is his, is his management philosophy. 
<laughs> like, I mean, I'm just, I'm trying to figure out, like, if you have to use prisoners to fight your war, does that mean you've lost already? I mean, or, or if you have to hire mercenaries to fight your war, does that mean you've lost already? I mean, there's so many clues like, wait a minute, this isn't working out. If you have to, if you have to pull out World War II equipment out of mothballs and send them to the line, does that mean you've lost her? I mean, what is going on in your mind? I just think it'd be curious to find out what he's thinking, that he thinks everything's okay. <laughs> I don't know. So yes, that's what I would, that's what I'd interview right now. I think I think that might be a little bit deeper than a management philosophy. There might be something else going on there. But this is not a political show. We're not going to go there. So okay. let's let's keep going. What's your favorite vacation spot and why? Oh, that's a that's a good question. I think it depends on my mood. I mean, if I'm if I'm in a sports mode, I like scuba diving and skiing. So obviously, the Caribbean or being out at at Snowmass or Steamboat. But overall, in terms of a city. I like Quebec City. I just got back from there, and I think I think being in the middle of French Canada and being in this village that's it just takes me. I feel like I'm in Europe, but it's only an hour and a half flight from my house. So it's a great, fun city. They have amazing artistic events there throughout the year. I just like hanging out in Quebec City. The other city I think they would compete with that is New York City, because New York City is the only place where I can be in the middle of Central Square. And I'm surrounded by over 200 countries within seven seven blocks. <laughs> yeah, New York is definitely cosmopolitan. That's for Everybody's sure. Everybody's there from all over the world. It's fabulous. <laughs> yeah, and we need to exchange scuba stories. Sure. I'm an instructor, and oh, cool. my goal is to retire early and go teach scuba someplace tropical. I haven't decided where yet. I love it. I've run into a lot of you guys when I was learning scuba diving. <laughs> Yeah, like work hard and then knock off a little bit early and then go go have a second career teaching scuba. Yes, yes. Good idea. I support that. Well, a tag on to your favorite vacation spot, where would you most like to travel that you haven't yet? And this might be hard for you to answer. Yeah, because I've been all over the world because I do these crazy expeditions yet. I haven't done Antarctica yet, only because there wasn't, there's not a lot to see. I mean... <laughs> Other than the life uh, around the shores, but it's just a uh, the guys that I met that have done work for National Geo and or had done that. They said, you know, after a while, it's just a bunch of white stuff. I mean, you go on you go inside uh, that continental area, and it's just a lot of snow and ice, <laughs> so not a lot of variety. But God, where would I like to go? I think I think areas that I haven't been to would probably be in areas of China and Upper Mongolia to visit some of the tribes there. A lot of history there. That sounds that sounds like a worthy goal. Thank you. And my last question for you, Don, what brings you the most joy in your life? Hmm. I think what makes me happy or happiest is seeing my children smile. You know, as I raise them and the now they're off to college and their careers. But as a dad, I think seeing them smile was something that I don't think I got enough of. I completely agree. I've got twin fourteen year old daughters and one of the things I love about working from home is being able to head upstairs whenever I want and hang out with them. So I work from home and they're homeschooled. So we're Great. together a lot, which is really nice. Great. Nice. Well, Don, thank you so much. I enjoyed this very much. I learned a ton. Just so that we get it for posterity, how can people find you again? 
Oh, yeah. You go to uh, sagaleadership.com, S-A-G-A, like the Viking saga, leadership.com. That should get you there. All right. Well, thanks for listening. Again, please subscribe, comment, share, and connect with me on LinkedIn. We will catch you on the next one. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Management Development Unlocked. Want more? Get a ton of insider tips and tools at gerardtrainingsolutions.com. 